Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Without further delay, let us now go to Boston University with Professor Noam Chomsky and Omar Bedor. Um, let me first uh, start by saying that it was exposure to Professor Chomsky's analysis roughly, roughly nine years ago at age 17 that sort of got me to begin to think critically about world affairs. Uh, so I have tremendous respect and admiration for him, and I'm actually honored to be sharing um, a panel with him. I um, got a message recently from um, a student at Brandeis University, somebody who clearly knows nothing about either my views or Professor Chomsky's views about the Israel lobby. Um, and basically he was outraged at the thought that I would be debating Professor Chomsky, uh, saying a debate is supposed to be between people who disagree with each other, and here you have Professor Chomsky debating some guy from an Arab organization. Yeah, right, some debate. Um, which I guess is a really good point, given the fact that there is a monolithic view that all Arabs subscribe to at birth or something, uh, which apparently Professor Chomsky happened to get in the wrong line <laughs> at that subscription process or something. Mir Sharma and Walt can point to cases where the Israel lobby did overcome administration opposition. So, for example, in 2002, um, Ariel Sharon launched Operation Defensive Shield in the West Bank, killing hundreds of Palestinians. Um, at a time when Bush basically was trying to gather up support for the Iraq war. Um, so he did not want to be on bad terms um, with the Arab world. And so he demanded that basically Israel end its incursion. Um, a couple of days later, he clarified that he meant that Israel should end it immediately. And a day after that, Condoleezza Rice got on TV quite upset, saying immediately means now. We expect the Israelis to end the incursion now. And in response, the Israel lobby essentially swung into action. Um, there were 100,000 emails that were sent to the White House from, from Christian evangelical uh, coalitions. Uh, basically, AIPAC applied pressure on Congress, and the next thing you know, uh, Congress is passing resolutions basically supporting Israel's incursion in defiance of the administration's requests to the opposite. And eventually, Bush essentially caved. He realized this was not worth the fight, and he said that uh, Israel had responded satisfactorily to his call, but Israel had actually done no such thing. So this is one example of the lobby overcoming um, U.S. administration opposition. Another would be the settlement building that goes on. Virtually every president up until the second George W. Bush um, opposed settlements quite explicitly. Um, and in the case of George Bush I, um, the opposition was so intense that he actually threatened uh, to cut off loan guarantees uh, to Israel. And you know there are comments, heated comments on the record from uh, James Baker and, and Bush the first that basically showed that they were quite upset about this. Uh, but in the end, the settlements continued, and the settlements continue until today. So I think the, what you, the, the pattern that you see emerging is that when we're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israel lobby seems to be able to get its way over administration opposition. But when you're talking about broader strategic uh, issues, the lobby does not stand a chance in the face of more powerful players. Um, and what's important to note here is one might say, well, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not of strategic interest, so the U.S. doesn't care that much. But the problem here is that this is not entirely true, is that U.S. policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been very costly for the United States on many fronts, the obvious ones being national security um, and the United States' image in the world. And then, of course, in terms of strategic positioning in the Middle East, and for that matter, in more details about access to oil and things like that. So. On this particular issue, you can say that 
uh, the Israel lobby does override independent U.S. policy preferences um, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, to the detriment of the United States. And we can, I know we're running out of time, so we can talk more about that in a bit. Well, uh, there isn't going to be much of a debate because I basically agree with almost everything you've said and I've written it many times. Uh, on, uh, I think you're right in taking the narrow definition of the Israeli lobby. The, uh, even in the book, the Walt Mearsheimer sometimes defined the lobby so loosely that it becomes close to tautologous. But if we keep to organized groups, like, for example, the Christian evangelicals, who, as you say, were instrumental, who you claim, I don't agree, were instrumental in uh, uh, overcoming administration opposition to uh, uh, the uh, Operation Defensive Shield, destruction of Janine. Uh, yeah, that's a big group. Uh, Christian evangelicals are probably, you know, a third of the uh, Republican vote, maybe a quarter of the population, huge electoral block. Uh, but uh, the government does not go along with them. Uh, they, their position is that uh, the U.S. should support every Israeli action, uh, everything, blow up the Temple Mount, which they've tried to do, uh, and the U.S. government doesn't do that. Uh, their reason for doing it is because they're dedicated anti-Semites. Uh, their position, probably the most extreme, uh, they want, uh, uh, you know, a lot of them are, accept a particular interpretation, uh, the rapture interpretation of revelations, which is what's going to happen is uh, there's going to be a war, you know, Gog and Magog and uh, all that business, and then uh, uh, there'll be a great war in Armageddon, everybody will be slaughtered, and the, those who are saved, namely us, will rise to heaven. What happens to the Jews? Well, they're not saved. Okay, so that's anti-Semitism at its most extreme level. And yes, they do want to support uh, Israeli policies because they'll lead the war. Uh, but the U.S. government doesn't go along with it. Uh, in the case of Operation Defensive Shield, uh, notice that if that's used as an example, then the lobby argument is in a serious self-contradiction. Uh, Walton Mearsheimer, as you point out, tried to claim that uh, uh, Israel drove the United States to the Iraq war on the side. That's completely contradicted even by their own evidence. But suppose we accept that it's true. Uh, the logic that you outlined is that uh, the lobby uh, wanted uh, – the, the lobby harmed U.S. interests by uh, forcing the U.S. to accept the Janine operations, even though it was undermining support for going to war with Iraq. Well, you can't have both positions. You know, either the lobby drove us to the war with Iraq or the lobby harmed the effort to go to the war with Iraq. With every new administration comes a renewed effort to try to revive the Middle East peace process. Uh, the Trump White House is certainly no exception right now, but instead of sending a seasoned politician or a diplomat, a veteran diplomat, President Trump is trying a different approach, sending his son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner to meet with leaders there. Uh, earlier today he was greeted by the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This is uh, an opportunity to pursue our common goals of uh, security, prosperity, and peace. And uh, Jared, I welcome you here in that spirit. I know of your efforts, the President's efforts, and I look forward to working you to achieve these common goals. Thank you. The President sends his best regards, and it's an honor to be here with you. Well, we just had a historic trip. Uh, the President was greeted here uh, with fantastic warmth. He made an indelible impression on the people of Israel. And it's good to see you again. Please send them our warmest regards. I definitely will.
We're speaking with Omar Badar, who is the deputy director at the American Arab Institute, and he's also a journalist. His writing has appeared at the Think Progress, AJ Plus, among others. Um, but he's very knowledgeable on the obviously the conflict in Israel Palestine. So we're going to discuss what's going on there um, currently and some other uh, historical facts that sort of contribute to the current situation. Welcome, Omar. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to backtrack for a second from my original set of questions to ask you about an article that came out this morning in Think Progress that you wrote. It's about Palestinian self-determination, and I'm using my scare quotes right now because it's really the stark opposite. Uh, So Jared Kirshner, who is heading up this, uh, is it a convention, I guess? Yeah. Without any Palestinians. Oh, okay. So, (laughs) so he invited everybody but the actual Palestinians to this thing. And, you know, I think we need to discuss the fact that currently, even without any changes in law, the Palestinians in the West Bank are economically suppressed. Uh, They're exploited. Their labor Mm -hmm. is uh, less than what they would pay if they were working in the state of Israel. They're often taking jobs to help build um, things that actually oppress them more, like the wall, et cetera, et cetera. So Jared wants to further this, and he's doing this in the name of freedom, more or less. Uh, So walk us through your piece and what Jared's working on. So before I get to the piece, I do want to touch on one thing that you mentioned, sort of about how the Palestinian economy is strangled and exploited. You know, a lot of people sometimes when they hear uh, about the fact that Palestinians constantly need aid and you hear a lot of, you know, frustrated sighs from, including from this Trump administration about the fact that we keep giving the Palestinians money and what we have to show for it and so on. But it really is important to remember that Palestinians are not really victims of some kind of natural disaster who are in need of, of assistance, you know. They are under a military occupation that is really suffocating their existence, and that is the reason why they need aid in the first place. And it's interesting because the United States is the reason why they are under that occupation. So the U.S. gives Israel up to $40 billion with a B every every decade. And that military aid is what enables Israel to maintain its illegal occupation over the Palestinian areas. And it's, it's in essence, basically, if you're tired of giving the Palestinians handouts, all you have to do is stop giving so much more money to the people who are oppressing them, and then you would, they would not need your help at all. So there's that that um, sort of self-contradiction there that is in play. When you look at a place like Gaza, which is under Israeli siege, you know, they use the excuse, the Israelis use the excuse that the reason why Gaza is under siege is because it's important for security that things not come in. But they don't even let Gaza trade with the outside world. Gaza cannot export fruits and vegetables to the rest of the world. So that's clearly not about security. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an attempt at keeping people strangled. And that is... So that that is really the fundamental issue here. So the piece that I wrote is about this conference that Jared Kushner is, is about to host next month in Bahrain that is supposed to be about economic investment in the Palestinian territories. And it's just really, it is laughable, it really is, that you are simultaneously the administration cutting off all kinds of humanitarian aid to the Palestinians, and you're enabling the military occupation of the Palestinian areas, and then now you're pretending that you're interested in investment in the Palestinian areas. 
it's yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a silly charade, and I think that ultimately they know that it they is. want to drag Palestinians to a process where they basically have to trade their political rights in exchange for some financial investment. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that they've ramped up the pressure with the cutting off of the humanitarian aid to Palestinian hospitals, mm -hmm. to Palestinian refugees. They want to reduce Palestinians to the brink and then come forward and say, hey, come and, come and play, play nice with the deal that we have to offer if you want some money. And that's effectively right. bribing Palestinians, and it's, it's simply not going to work. No, and it shouldn't work. And I think, um, if anything, this is a handout to the Israeli businesses that are already, you know, having factories there outside of Hebron, et cetera, mm -hmm. because the economic investment is more or less going to go to them. So it's like Soda Stream, Sabra Foods, um, amongst others that, that do all of their manufacturing in the West Bank because they get to pay lower uh, wages, et cetera. So the exploitation yeah. is going to remain, and it's going to just boost the businesses. Yeah, and, and it's, it's coupled with an endorsement of Israeli settlements that are yeah. built inside the <sighs> right. Palestinian areas that host right. all these businesses. You know, every previous administration, every single one of them, has opposed, has opposed Israeli settlement expansion in the Palestinian areas. Yeah. Those settlements are completely illegal under international law. In fact, they are considered war crimes. Yeah. You're not supposed to grab land from an occupied area and move mm -hmm. your population into it. But that's what Israel has done consistently throughout the so-called peace Indeed. process. You know, that I'm trying to use quotes here. Is that the idea that they were pretending that they were going to allow a Palestinian state to come into existence, but instead they kept building those settlements. Mm -hmm. And there are so many settlements right now that it's impossible for a Palestinian state to exist because right. Israel basically has taken over. You know, it's not just the physical geographic area of each individual settlement, but it's the roads that connect them. It's the security that surrounds them. And all of that basically just precludes the possibility of an independent, viable Palestinian state to exist. And that yeah. settlement enterprise, the Trump administration was the first administration to break with the idea that the U.S. should oppose them. You know, the U.S. Right. was under legitimate criticism with previous administrations because they never did anything about it. You know, That's right. Like, Obama talked nice about the need to stop building settlements. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But they, they were never willing to apply the needed pressure. And so I guess that previous administrations deserve some criticism as well. They do. But this is a whole new level yeah. with the Trump administration basically backing off even criticizing settlements. They're just totally down with yeah. Israel taking over the entire territory. And that's what this is about. That's what it's always been about. It's a land grab. I think mm -hmm. on that note, I want to sort of go back in time and have a discussion on what Zionism is in the first place, because I think a lot of Americans gets confused about what that means. And I want to... Um, I want to sort of make it really clear that Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism whatsoever. It's not any sort of religious belief. It's strictly a political uh, movement. And even originally, if you go back in time, most of the Jewish diaspora did not support Zionism as, as a movement. So it took a lot of propaganda to, to make that change. And I think a lot of folks are really not entirely clear on the historical context of that. You had the uh, Ergon and the Haganah who were Jewish terrorists. They're self-identified as terrorists. So this is not me making a crazy claim here. But when, when Britain gave them this land, and I feel like I also have to add that this was not Britain's land to give away in the first place. I feel like uh, Israel is one of the last colonial states um, in the world. So... But when this happened, 
there this wasn't something that everybody sort of got behind and rubber stamped. There was a progression of uh, of thought in this because of the constant propaganda that was put out. They they learned early on that this was the way that they won the battle, and. You know, you flash forward to now and they never dealt with that initial action where you displace 750,000 natives from the land. And at some point you have to come to terms with that or just realize you're just going to get constant blowback and it's never going to be a safe and secure environment for anyone. So, uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Look, early on, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting because even to be a Zionist, yeah. meant many different things to different people. There was mm. one version, one vision of Zionism that did not envision that you would have to drive Palestinians out and take their place, that you would just go right. and live with them. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not the form of Zionism <laughs> that won out, you know? So right. it's, it's, you That'd know, be it's different. a sad reality. Yeah, just the, the term Zionism ends up being charged, and it means different things to different people. Yeah, But ultimately, charged. I think we have, yeah, we, we have to deal with the fact that the the version of Zionism that one is the one that we talk about, and that is the one that led directly to the displacement, as you said, to seven, of 750,000 Palestinians out of their homes right. in order to allow for the creation of a Jewish state. So in essence, you know, what, what Israelis celebrate as Independence Day, the creation of Israel, Palestinians mourn as the date that led to the right. great expulsion and the destruction of over 400 Palestinian towns and villages throughout that entire area. And it's, that's, that's what, where Palestinian refugees come from in the first mm-hmm. place, you know. Right. So, again, we talk once more about the fact that Palestinian refugees constantly need aid and how come this refugee crisis has not been solved and, and so on. But it only has not been solved because Israel has refused to let them allow them to return to their homes the way all refugees have a right to return to their homes after times of, of, of military conflict. I so, agree. Yeah, that is, that is the fundamental problem. And it was amazing about... All of this is that the Palestinians have made a very, very big major compromise in accepting a two-state solution. I agree. In 19, yeah, in 1988, they came and said, okay, fine, we're going to recognize Israel, we're going to recognize to renounce any territorial rights to 78% of historic Palestine. Israel exists basically on, on nearly 80% of Palestine. Yeah. And the Palestinians said, that is okay, we're going to accept that, and in return what we want is just an end to the occupation which Israel is obligated under international law to end in the West Bank, in Gaza, and East Jerusalem, all of mm-hmm. which amounts to 22% of Palestine. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, it was the Israelis that said no. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's such the Palestinians bent over backwards to accommodate whatever Israel wants for the sake of just finding a solution. Right. And Israel insisted on not doing that. They insisted on building more and more settlements throughout the Palestinian territories to make Palestinian independence impossible. So now we're back at square one of saying, okay, fine, what kind of state is this going to be? Mm-hmm. Is this going to be an apartheid state, as it is currently, mm-hmm. with Israelis and, and Jews specifically having more rights than Palestinians? That's right. Um, or is this going to be a state where everybody is an equal? And frankly, if you're going to have a law in Israel that allows any person who is Jewish, no matter where they were born, no matter where they're from, to move to Israel, then it doesn't make any sense that you have Palestinian refugees who were just driven out a few decades ago who are not allowed to return to their original homes. It's just, it ought to apply for everyone. Oh, I we agree. Know what this, yeah, we know what this would look like in the U.S. if, for example, Texas declared itself a white state yeah. and said that we don't want anybody who's Hispanic to come move to the state. And, you know, if you're born yeah. and you're white, you can come here. But if you're not, 
you know, this 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 kind of vision, we're just we're past it. We're in we're past 2019 it. for for heaven's sake. Where yeah. we're just we <laughs> ought to start treating everybody as equals, regardless of of their ethno religious background. And that's you know, that really is what the conflict boils down to. At the end of the day, I think it's that Palestinians are living under apartheid. Oh, they absolutely are. You know, and I've often said this: you can either be a democracy or you can be in a religious ethno state. Pick your poison, but you can't be both. Um, And I think they made their choice. But, you know, here's the worst part is, you know, my Israeli friends that were born there, most of them have left the country because they're leftists. And they don't feel comfortable there any longer because you've got the far right, you've got the further right, and then you've got the Mm neo-fascists. It's the society there is is exceedingly uh, just shifted so far to the right. You can't even have this discussions. They hate leftists as, as much as they hate Palestinians at this point, and yep. it's really scary. It is. It is. It's incredibly unfortunate, and that was not the case early on. You know, no, it wasn't. And I really think that the the party to blame here was the labor government in Israel mm. because the peace process failed for a very specific reason, because mm-hmm. the Labor Party did not offer the Palestinians real sovereignty when they were talking about state. They 100%. were still basically, yeah. And and as a result, the peace process failed, but then the Labor Party turned around to Israeli society and said, we gave the Palestinians everything and they still rejected peace. That's mm. proof that Palestinians are not interested in peace. They just want us destroyed or gone or whatever. It was a lie. It was not the truth. But it was such a powerful lie that I think that it's created this shift within Israeli society where Mm. everybody turned against the peace camp because they started believing the idea that peace with Palestinians is hopeless. And therefore, it drove the entire, shifted the entire society to the right. Where right now, I mean, it's as crazy as it seems, Benjamin Netanyahu is very far extreme to the right from our perspective. But But he's not in society. Yeah, exactly. He's a centrist, and he has to make you know make common yep. cause with people to his right in Israeli society. In fact, there is followers, you know, a party called the Jewish Power Party in Israel. Are they, they are more to the right than Home Party at this point? Would oh, you say? They're, they're, these these are the most extreme that okay. there is. Uh, they're followers of of Rabbi Maya Kahane. Yeah. Yep. And they're the ones who very openly advocate for the ethnic funding of Palestinians they out do. of the Palestinian territories and oh, out of yeah. Israel as, as well. So, yeah, if these are the kinds of people that he's been trying to create a political alliance with. That gives you a sense of how problematic things, you know, have gone. And honestly, it's, it's hard to imagine what kind of drastic action it's going to take to kind of shift things into a more sane direction. Mm-hmm. But right now, the prospect of Israel on its own making peace with the Palestinians and respecting their rights seems close to it's zero. It's which, yeah. yeah, which is why we need international pressure to step in and try to curtail Israel's bad behavior and, and provide justice for the Palestinians. Indeed. In fact, I'm recalling now that around 2014, didn't President Rivlin call Israeli society a sick society at this point for these reasons? There, Yeah, there have been plenty of people who have, I mean, it's funny, like the word apartheid in the U.S. context seems loaded and people don't like to use it's it. It's not there. But it's it's not at all. Like yeah. Israeli newspapers, including left-leaning ones yeah. particularly, they use the word often. Even former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak yes. said that we're at risk of becoming an apartheid state if the situation continues. Mm-hmm. Like That word is, is used so frequently, and it really is incredibly apt. Obviously, there are very big differences between the situation in South Africa during apartheid and the situation in Palestine, but they do have one thing in common, which is that the party in power treats people because of their ethno, uh, ethnic background, background 
differently, and they have different sets of rights because of who they are. And that's, that's you know, that is really the most accurate way to describe the current system that Palestinians live under. Yeah, it's frightful. Um, in fact, let's go in, back in time into 2011 now. I wanted to ask you about the Palestinian papers, which were leaked documents that didn't get a lot of press here in the United States, and they should have, because they these papers were validated. Uh, the prime minister said they were real. The, the PLO folks said they were real. So there's no doubt that these leaks were fake. Um, they were definitely real. But what they sort of exposed was, was it gave us clarity in the fact that the Palestinian people did not have a partner in peace, that the Israelis were not interested in peace, they didn't want to give back any of the occupied land. In fact, they wanted to take more. And yep. yet here we are, 2019, and you still have Americans that kind of repeat the dogmatic bullshit, pardon my friends, that it's the Palestinians mm -hmm. that don't want peace, that they're not partners, that it's the Palestinians that are, um, you know, intractable, et cetera, et cetera. And it really frustrates me because we can't really come to any place of solution until we're dealing with the straight up facts. And we have yet to deal with the straight up facts here in the United States. And I also want to add that I blame the Democratic, the Democratic Party for a part of this because they have, in the way the Labor Party did in Israel, they have placated this as well. They literally side with neo-fascists in the state of Israel, even though they say they're leftists, they do it anyway, and they're not sincere about what's really going on there, and they're unwilling to have the conversation. So your your description of sort of this fundamental problem is spot on about okay. the fact that the you know the, this talking point that the Palestinians are the ones who are not a partner for peace and Israel has no partner has been it's just such a breathtaking reversal of reality. And it yeah. really is infuriating about it the is. fact that it really dominates our discourse and has not been challenged effectively. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's, it's the case that throughout the peace process, what, the only party that was asked to make any compromises was the Palestinians, right? That's right? Because when you think about anything, about the right of return, when you think about the right to fully end the occupation, to withdraw all the settlements, to get East Jerusalem back, all of these are Palestinian rights. Everything that was Israeli was not on the table during negotiations. So despite the fact that the Palestinians were the only ones making compromises, and they were making huge ones, yeah. the rhetoric was still about the fact that Palestinians, because they refused to give everything up that Israel wanted, the rhetoric was that the Palestinians were too intransigent. And it was, mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it's, it was an infuriating lie, and it still dominates the discourse still this day. And you'll notice that the Trump administration is also picking it up. Oh, yeah. And I think that, right, yeah, you see it with the current efforts of the Trump administration where they are creating a, a, a peace process, if you can even call it that. I mean, it's such a, such a ridiculous <laughs> term at this point. No, but, right? Yep. It's, and <sighs> they're making it impossible for Palestinians to come to the table because they yeah. just took Jerusalem from them and they said Jerusalem is now off the table. They've endorsed the settlement expansion. They've shut down the Palestinian diplomatic mission in Washington, D.C. Yeah. They've shut down the U.S. Uh, diplomatic mission in East Jerusalem that was serving Palestinians, basically, and, and cut off all aid to Palestinian refugees and hospitals and, and, and all development programs. They're basically letting Israel do whatever it wants and endorsing all of Israel's behavior, right. and then punishing the Palestinians for everything and saying, how come you don't want to come and talk? Well, I'm sorry, this is exactly like inviting somebody over for dinner every day, and every time they come in, you just kick them in the face and throw them out, and then right. start talking about how come they don't want to come over anymore. You see, they, they don't, you know, they're, they're not right. saying nice. 
Well, you, you're you not inviting them to anything that is real. They know what this game is, and that's why they're not participating. And honestly, mm-hmm. I think this is this is an incredibly important point to make clear, and, and frankly, one that I think I'll probably end up making a video about soon, mm. just because I know that now that this ultimate deal that the Trump administration is about to come out with, that they're about to come out with, is going to have that narrative precisely, that we presented this deal. The Israelis were fine with it, naturally, because they like everything in it, because everything in it is right. to them. And the Palestinians won't like it, obviously, because it's going to deny all of their rights. And then they're going to say, oh, see, the Israelis want peace and the Palestinians don't. It's just going to be this kind of rhetoric. So I think it is. this is something that has to be explained to an American public much, much better. It absolutely does. And, you know, it's like all of the rhetoric that's been used from start to finish has been mind-boggling to me. I mean... You can go down the list of things that were given. Uh, one of my all-time favorites, just, just because it's a metaphysical sleight of hand, is this idea that there's no such thing as Palestine. Ergo, mm-hmm. there's no Palestinian people. They're actually Jordanians. I mean, like, I just from start to That's finish, the, right? You've heard it, though. Like, every time I get into arguments with these Hospira trolls, this is the kind of stuff that they say, and it's just bullshit, straight up. Yep. Yeah, there wasn't an Israel before 1948. What is the relevance of that exactly? You know, we're either talking about people or we're not. Mm -hmm. If the Palestinians were called whatever you want to call them, honestly, Mm -hmm. call them Martians, it doesn't matter. There's still an indigenous people who live in that area. Mm -hmm. And whether they have an independent state or not does not change the fact that they have the right to be where they are because they are the indigenous people of their homeland. And that's, yeah, that's... Call them, call them Jordanians, call them Arabs, call them whatever the hell you want. They identify as Palestinians. It makes That's sense right. to just go with what they identify themselves as. But they absolutely have the right to be there because that is their home and that is where their continuous presence has been for, you know, for, thousands of years. Exactly. And, you know, and I also think it's important to realize that not all Palestinians are Muslim. You have a large Christian uh, population there. And there were absolutely Jewish folks living in historic Palestine prior to Israel. So, I, I mean, I know, I used to know, he's now passed away, but I knew a uh, Jewish guy that had a Palestinian passport. So, oh, wow. when, when they say this stuff, I just kind of have to do an eye roll because it's just absurd to me. Um, yeah. And now, so, I think the, the latest area that's going to be problematic is the Golan Heights. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you now have Trump has declared that the occupation of Golan Heights is is fine and that it should be Israeli territory, which is even more outrageous. I mean, this was land that was seized in 1967. Uh, As you can imagine, most of the influential reaction has come from the Middle East itself. Now, Syria, uh, directly concerned, has strongly condemned uh, the move by the Trump administration. Uh, A declaration in the official SANA news agency called it irresponsible, saying it clearly reflects the contempt of the U.S. for international rules. Of course, some may accuse Damascus of hypocrisy there. Uh, And said it's committed to the liberation of the Golan Heights by all means at its disposal. Um, The Palestinians have said that it could ignite violence in the region. The Arab League has issued a statement as well condemning uh, the moves and saying that it fully supports Syria's right to its occupied uh, territory. There's some suggestions, though, that the overall reaction around the Middle East has been a little bit muted here. Syria's allies, predictably, have come on board. Russia, which backs Syria, the Assad uh, government, uh, says that this is a direct violation of UN decisions, and Iran has called it illegal and acceptable, and illegal and unacceptable. 
Some of the strongest reaction has come from Turkey. President Erdogan uh, has described it as putting the whole region on the edge of a new crisis and bringing new tension. You mentioned the Middle East, some pretty strong words from Erdogan. How would this move affect the whole Middle East? Well, of course, we've heard the warnings from the Palestinians and others that this could lead to more instability. But other than that, it's largely symbolic because nothing really changes uh, on the ground. Uh, for 50 years now, uh, the Golan Heights have been largely under uh, Israeli control. It's very important to Israel, uh, this area. As the name suggests, it's uh, an area of high land. And from there, Syria, uh, the, the Israelis can see all the way into Syria. Damascus is only some 60 kilometers away. And of course, given the civil war, it's extremely important to uh, the Israelis, just as the area was important to Syria beforehand. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, has long been pushing the Trump administration to make this move, recognize their sovereignty over the Golan Heights. It's now paid off. It came when Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was in Israel this week, and Netanyahu used that chance uh, to seize it. Uh, Trump has, of course, made no secret of his pro-Israeli stance. He's pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. He's moved the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now we've got this. It overturns decades of U.S. policy in the Middle East. Um, through military occupation again. So, you know, and yep. another thing, part of the Hasbara is... They say, well, you know, we won that war. Well, that doesn't make it okay. If somebody invaded the United States and stole Texas, would Americans stand by and say, oh, hey, that's okay. You won. It's yours. It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's completely preposterous. It is. And, you know, it's funny. UN resolutions have been, have been incredibly explicit about this. Look, it's not a controversial standard of international law that land cannot be acquired by force. That is a very, very standard aspect of international law. And that's why there is a mountain of UN resolutions that talk about the fact that the occupation has to come to an end. And, yeah, just basically the Trump administration stepping in and deciding that the annexation of, of, of Syrian territory by Israel is fine. You are enabling the worst behavior. You're, you're not being a friend to Israel in the long term, honestly, behaving this way. Mm -hmm. If if one of your friends stole somebody else's purse, or uh, by the way, I noticed that somebody stole your phone recently. I saw that, yeah. that video. Uh, if you don't that mind, I'd wild, like to talk it? about that as well at some point. But um, yeah, no, it's um, you wouldn't just go and say, "Well, you know, it's my friend. I have to be good to them. Just you know, they can take whatever they want." That's not what being a good friend is. Right. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. Is exactly. <laughs> you know, makes you a much better friend. And this is one of those cases where if yeah. the U.S. wanted to be a friend to Israel, they would have to go to them and say, listen, you can't go around and behave this way. You can't steal other people's land. You have to behave like a decent country so that you can become a normal part of this world. And in order yeah. to become a normal part of it, you can't go around behaving like you're above the law and above everybody else's rights. Yeah, but, um, no, it's creating a much yeah. more unhealthy environment for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so, part of that, too, is if you look back during that period— it was also, I think, an obvious turning point where the David-Goliath narrative sort of falls apart because when the Lebanon, the Lebanon war happened, this was clearly Israel being the aggressor, and they, you know, they massacred a lot of Palestinians in the refugee camps. And if you look back at the news coverage at that time, it was actually much more authentic than it is now. So there was definitely a shift. I think this is when world opinion all of a sudden started looking at the photos of, of what was happening, the video, the journalists um, 
were airing and it scared them because public opinion was shifting a little bit saying, wait a second, this doesn't seem to me like Israel is, is the underdog anymore. This seems really aggressive. Two years after the Lebanon invasion, the American Jewish Congress sponsored a conference in Jerusalem to devise a formal public relations strategy known in Hebrew as Hasbara. Participants included PR and advertising executives, media specialists, journalists, and leaders of major Jewish groups. According to a brochure from the Congress, no single event brought home the need for a more effective Hasbara or information program more persuasively than the 1982 war in Lebanon and the events that followed. As one conference participant put it, Israel is no longer perceived to be Little David, but Goliath steamrolling across the map. The primary aim of the conference was to develop strategies to spin unpopular Israeli policies and to counter negative press coverage by shaping the media frame in advance. News doesn't just jump into a camera, a conference delegate said. It's directed, it's managed, it's made accessible. Israel-based advertising executive Martin Fenton would put it in even more blunt terms. Propaganda is not a dirty word, he said. Face it, we are in the game of changing people's minds, of making them think differently. To accomplish that, we need propaganda. The conference was chaired by U.S. advertising executive Carl Spielvogel, the legendary ad man who created the highly acclaimed Miller Lite beer ads in the 1970s. The choice of Spielvogel makes perfect sense. He's known as a master of image inversion and rebranding, the ad man responsible for transforming Miller Lite, which had been viewed before as a woman's beer, into a manly beer that tough guys would drink. But the best part is that it tastes so great. <laughs> the best part is it's less filling. Nah, it tastes great. Less his job with Israel would require the same kind of rebranding, only in the opposite direction, to help soften the image of a country that's coming to be seen as a bully. So he recommends creating a cabinet post dedicated exclusively to explaining policy, whose job would not be setting policy, but presenting it in the most attractive way to the rest of the world. Classic PR is to say the problem is not the policy, it's the presentation. When the policies are so reprehensible that many people become critical, rather than acknowledge there's anything wrong with the policy, there's a doubling down on the PR effort. And it's, it's been a myth, honestly, for, for decades. I mean, Israel is a nuclear-armed state. Yeah. They have hundreds of nuclear warheads. And it's funny, you know, you constantly hear them about how Iran is a threat because Iran might be developing nuclear power, <laughs> all that stuff. Just the hypocrisy of it is really breathtaking, you know. It is breathtaking. To, to behave as though things are right for you to do but not right for anybody else, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really shameless. They, just, they don't see their opponents as equal human beings, which has always been the fundamental problem. They see themselves as above other people in the region, mm -hmm. and... Until they realize that Palestinians are equal human beings who deserve all the rights and the dignity that Israelis get to enjoy, then you're not going to resolve this conflict. It's never going to end. It's just going to be endless, you know, cycle of, of violence and devastation because peace requires justice. And any peace that is not built on justice is going to be a temporary peace, and it's only going to be a matter of time before people demand something better and you have just this continuation of the conflict. So, yeah. Indeed. Um, and, you know, and psychologically, I, you know, this is a struggle, I think, a lot for leftist Jewish people is this, um, this struggle where, because you do have increased anti-Semitism in the world, and this is obviously the line that they try to sell you, support Israel because of anti-Semitism. 
But I sort of see that in a counterintuitive way. I don't think Israel, I think Israel is actually in some areas causing an increase in anti-Semitism because when this aggressive stuff is seen, people that are already hating Jewish people kind of turn it around and say, look, I'm validated. Look what's happening in Israel. And, um, you know, I don't, obviously we need to do something about anti-Semitism, but I don't think, I don't think causing, you can't, you can't end anti-Semitism by being racist or hateful or genocidal to another group of people. This is just unacceptable. And I, go ahead. You know, honestly, look, because anti-Semitism is a very real and growing and disturbing problem in our world, yeah. that that's, makes this so important. And, you know, we've seen an attack on the Tree of Life uh, <sighs> church horrible. six months ago that killed 11 people. We saw another attack in, in San Diego not that long ago also mm-hmm. that killed one person and injured two seriously. This is a serious problem. And you have two things that are happening at once. I think it's incredibly cynical. And frankly, I think it's anti-Semitic in itself to mm-hmm. pretend that Israel speaks for all Jews. And that is constantly, the, you know, that's the cynical conflation that is being made very frequently, that any time, you know, for example, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar criticizes APAC or somebody criticizes Israel, and they try to say, oh, no, to criticize Israel is to be anti-Semitic because Israel is a Jewish state. That's not only wrong and, and ridiculous, it is also incredibly destructive to the real fight against anti-Semitism. Because when you start saying that anybody who stands up for human rights is an anti-Semite, you're taking the stigma away from that term, and that is really, really dangerous because anti-Semitism is a real problem that we have to fight, and you can't be watering it down that way. And so, I you know, agree. there are multiple efforts right now. There is a, an attempt in Congress to pass something called the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act. I mean, you can't oppose a bill with that name, right? Like, of course, we need to increase awareness of anti-Semitism. But, but that's when you look not at what the it details, does. Yeah. Yeah. But when you look at the details, you notice that the bill is actually trying to expand the definition of anti-Semitism to include criticism of Israel. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, it says things like to demonize Israel is anti-Semitic, things like to delegitimize Israel. But these are very subjective words. Who yeah. decide what, what, what level of criticism amounts to demonization, you know? You can't enter an area where people have to regulate the way they talk about a foreign country. I agree. In order to not pass as, as bigots in some way, like... You know, the world politics are a real thing. Frankly, people talk about all kinds of countries in a very demonizing way. When you look at the rhetoric of the Trump administration towards Iran, it's entirely inflated and out of proportion, and they're pretending that Iran is a bigger threat than it ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, but, that, but that's not bigotry, right? Like, we can oppose that. For example, I obviously oppose Trump's policy towards Iran. This path of confrontation that we're seeking with Iran seems to be incredibly stupid, mm-hmm. especially when President Obama had already signed a nuclear deal that puts that eliminates the possibility that Iran would ever be able to to develop nuclear weapons. So Trump is choosing a path of confrontation, but I would not describe Trump's, you know, animosity towards Iran as necessarily a form of bigotry. That's not what's really at at the heart of it. You know, I think he's playing politics cynically. Likewise, you can disagree with people criticizing Israel if you have a problem with that, but don't conflate that with bigotry. This is ultimately yes. politics related to foreign countries, and we can't make that, you know, we, we, can't, we, we can't water down the charge of anti-Semitism by throwing it so lightly at people who have political disagreements with us. I agree. So, yeah. I agree, and that's yeah. exactly what's happened, and that's part of what Israeli Hasbara is, is to sell the idea that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic because it only suits their purposes in the short term, I would say, I think yeah. um, I think it's dangerous, and I'll tell you two reasons why it's dangerous. The first is that no state is above criticism, 
thinking that any state's actions ought to be Teflon coded is just wrong because then it sort of gives the state carte blanche to do whatever it wants, no matter how egregious or immoral, right? That's the first part. The second part is the underlying motivations for non-Jewish folks to make these claims aren't in the best interest of Jewish people. And let me explain. I, I think you have two segments here. I think you have the Christian Zionists. And the Christian Zionists don't care about Jewish people. They just want the second coming of Christ. So they teach that if uh, Israel exists, that uh, is a necessary component for Christ coming again. That's the first, the first segment. The second segment are those that simply believe in ethnostates, sort of like Richard Spencer. So these are white separatists, white nationalists. But they, yep. they'll find agreement with, like, uh, Yair Netanyahu because they both believe in ethnostates. And the danger here is when Yair Netanyahu says to Richard Spencer, I'm okay with you because I have the same sort of political beliefs. But I, it just angers me because I want to try and say to Yair, are you fucking out of your mind? Richard <laughs> Spencer thinks you should be dead. He thinks you're less than. He thinks you're inferior. Why would you yep. make a uh, truce with somebody like that simply because you want an ethnostate? Don't you, you should, yeah. in turn, look at your own belief system and sort of question what those things are. Yeah, it's, it's a bizarre common cause with, with the Christian Zionists. You know, yeah. the, the belief is that all Jews must go to Israel in order for the second coming of Jesus to come. Mm-hmm. But then what follows is that then the Jews who have made it to Israel either have to convert to Christianity or, or yeah, die they and, go to hell. Go yeah. to hell. <laughs> You know, like, it's wild. So, but I think that there's something cynical here. Is that Isn't Israel right? understands that these people are not real allies, but they find them as a useful tool mm-hmm. to enable their current policies, and so they're more than happy to play nice with the Christian Zionists because they see them. They see them correctly as a yeah. pretty significant force in U.S. politics, and you know they have. Whenever you think of sort of like the pro-Israel lobby, people immediately think of APAC or Sheldon Adelson. But frankly, the the, the Christian Zionists. And the evangelicals are a much, much more, much bigger force in the U.S., and they mm-hmm. have tremendous influence on the Republican Party. Oh, and tremendous. Is, yeah. There have been many, you know, numerous cases where the Christian, you know, the evangelicals have been have been um, the reason why Israel has backed off of certain criticisms of Israel, including George W. Bush, when he was pressuring Israel to end uh, a military campaign in the West Bank in 2002, mm-hmm. it was a flood of, of Christian evangelicals calling and demanding that the, mm. the president back off from it, that he ultimately decided to back off. Mm. You know, So, yeah, they're, they're, they're a serious force to be reckoned with, and ultimately they're not real friends to the Jewish people in the U.S., obviously. They've had a conference not that long ago, actually. was it mm-hmm. what? Um, I think it was being reported on in the news. Yeah, the one where they called Bill Maher, quote, the stupidest Jew in Hollywood, end quote. (laughs) You know, like, these are not good people. People who speak like that, these are not people that you want to have on your side. They're horrible. uh, Just a couple of days ago, actually, in Miami, there there was another one where an evangelical church that was set to honor Israel, had to have a day honoring Israel, ended up canceling that event. Because the local Israeli consul general had participated in a pro-LGBT uh, parade, mm. so like ultimately these are not tolerant people. These are Mm-mm. people who are, you know, have have pretty pretty scary ideology. But yeah, no, I think I think there's a very cynical game here of just exploiting the fact that they want something for end times, and Israel finding right. it useful to enable its worst policies 
But again, really, what this boils down to at the end of the day is that enabling Israel's worst policies, yes, obviously the damage is to the Palestinians in the short term. They are the biggest victims of Israeli policy. But in the long term, you're not doing the Israeli people any favors with that stuff either. Oh, I agree. They ultimately are the ones who are stuck living in that neighborhood in the Middle East. And if your entire relationship with the people around you is that you subjugate them and, and trample on their rights, you're never going to have a real sustainable peace. Peace cannot be maintained no. at the end of a gun forever because you never know what shifts in, right. in power happen in the future. That if you're really interested in getting along in the, with the neighborhood that you're in, you have to change your behavior and treat yeah. people with dignity and respect so I agree. that you can all be accepted and live together. Oppressed people will fight for their freedom. And the Jewish people know that better than anyone, which is why I sort of have never made peace with the state of Israel because I it mm-hmm. just seems so counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, honestly, on, on that note, I just want to say that the diversity in, in American Jewish public opinion has been really refreshing when you look at it. Is that yeah. there was a time when AIPAC pretended to speak for all American Jews. Mm-hmm. And right now, with the emergence of J Street in the center and Jewish Voice for Peace, and, and That's right. um, if not now, and so many progressive Jewish organizations, that myth is finally busted. And yep. frankly, almost every event or talk or protest that I attend in support of Palestinian rights, you know, there are so many American Jews at the forefront of it, mm-hmm. and that's so refreshing that I think it's been critical to sort of breaking that, that myth I agree that to be that to be you know that to be supportive of the Jewish people is to necessarily support everything Israel does. That is definitely no longer the case. And I'm glad definitely that not. Around. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, and I don't know if you know that they put us on the same list as Hamas, which it's mm-hmm. like I have to laugh because it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Wow. So, so ridiculous. <laughs> you know, people people who literally advocate nonviolence in every way and are just protesting. Yeah, for, for we're as rights. threatening to yeah. Israel as Hamas is. That's just, I mean, wrap your mind around that for, for a moment. Yeah. It's insanity. I wanted yeah. to talk about Meghan McCain for a second because I sort of feel in in uh, her, her recent uh, behaviors is really sort of the poster child for what we're talking about. She mm-hmm. has been uh, very vocally just saying crazy stuff like she's, She's, anyway, she's been telling leftist Jewish folks that have criticized her statements on Christian Zionism. She's been calling them anti-Semitic. So it's like, yeah. the first part of this is like, Megan McCain, you're not Jewish, so take all the seats. <laughs> you are yeah. certainly not the spokesperson for any Jewish person because you're not Jewish. But for you to yeah. turn around and tell Jewish people that they're anti-Semitic because they're telling you to knock it off, that's sort of a next-level delusion, in my opinion. It is. It is. And, and she's been <laughs> sort of one of the most successful people who have been fearing Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. You know, I think this yeah. is a distinction also yeah. that is really important. She literally was talking about the fact that she was being demanded to show a level of loyalty towards Israel. She was talking about herself. Mm-hmm. And every media outlet, you know, because of the smear campaign, nobody bothered to do serious fact-checking. Right. And so everybody who wrote about this ended up writing that Ilhan Omar was somehow uh, disputing the loyalty of American Jews. She never spoke about she American never, Jews yeah. at all. It at was bullshit. All, you know? I agree. It was and, bullshit. And when you look at the pressure that she was coming under, you know, there was uh, Congress uh, Congressman Juan Vargas in California. You're yeah, one, of, one of your people over there. <laughs> know, yep. He's terrible. He said, <laughs> quote, and I'm quoting here word for word. He said, questioning support for the U.S.-Israel relationship is unacceptable. Yeah, no. I you know, I let him have it on Twitter. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. 
yes. And this, there are so many of them, you know, like Andrew Cuomo in New York. He instituted a boycott of Indiana because Indiana passed anti-gay laws, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, he's somebody who believes in that you can boycott. But then the same person turns around and says that, to a, you know, to boy, if you boycott Israel, then New York is going to boycott you. And you just have to hold your head in, in, in bafflement. Yeah. Why is boycotting an American state okay, but boycotting a foreign con- country not okay? Why does that double double standard exist? On what basis do you decide who can be boycotted and who can't? You know, it's it's really, really ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And I sort of have a theory on this. I don't think our support of Israel isn't grounded in love for the Jewish people. Let me just say that really clearly. Mm -hmm. Anybody that thinks otherwise should slap themselves now and listen to what I'm saying. It absolutely is not. They could care less about the Jewish people. What this is about is entirely geopolitical. It's about the fact that because of our our dependence on oil for all these decades, we're talking about, let me go back to the fact that in the 60s, the CIA overturned a democratically elected government in Iran because they were about to nationalize oil. So I feel like we have to start there or somewhere around there to really understand why the geopolitical necessity of why the United is is Israel's friend. It has nothing to do with the Jewish people and everything to do with the location of the state. And it's why we prop them up with so much aid money. We have a a bunker, for lack of a better word, of our, an arsenal. Let me say it's this. It's a massive arsenal of arms, bullets, etc. that we keep there in Israel. And I think all of this is related back to the fact that our government is very much pro-corporation. And oftentimes the decisions we make in foreign policy have everything to do with protecting business interests abroad. Um, What do you think? Would you agree with that? So, yeah, if you look at the history of when U.S. aid to Israel shot up, that really tells you everything there is to know Mm. about the reason for U.S. support for Israel. Mm -hmm. The U.S. recognized Israel reluctantly at the beginning, and sort of like the aid levels were very low. And then after 1967 mm-hmm. is when Israel, when aid to Israel shot up a hundredfold. And what happened in 1967 is that Israel demonstrated a level of military superiority right. by defeating three neighboring countries in only six days yep. that the U.S. decided, okay, in a neighborhood that's important, we want these guys to be on our side. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So it is all geostrategic. That's the origin of it, right? Is that you want the U.S. always has, you know... It's sort of like the behavior of any empire, frankly. Yeah, Where absolutely. Any region, yeah, in any region, you need a local cop in every region to be the person who works <laughs> for you to keep everybody else in line. You know, yep. And so I think that Israel, that, that, that was the function that Israel plays in, in the Middle East, is that you have the most powerful country in the region be allied with you, and they keep everybody in line, and you mm-hmm. maintain their edge over everybody else, and it's just mm-hmm. a relationship that, that works and goes on. It gets trickier when you start talking about the occupation of the Palestinian territories right. and the denial of Palestinian rights, because that does not benefit the U.S. The U.S. does not benefit from Palestinians having their homes destroyed and having settlers take them over. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's not something that serves U.S. interests. And but this they is ignore the influence, it. Yeah, exactly. This is where the influence of the Israel lobby comes in, because that's why every president before Trump was complaining about Israel's behavior, never willing to do anything about it because it was never strategically important enough Mm -hmm. that it was not worth getting into a confrontation with the Israel lobby over. Mm -hmm. So they would let it go. They would, you know, just raise a fuss, just rhetorically put themselves on the right side of history by saying, this is not cool, I think Israel should stop doing that, but would never do anything about it. And that's, you know, 
Theoretically, you've you've had some people actually, um, like um, I'm trying to remember his name, General from who headed Tetcom for a while in in the Middle East, uh, General Petraeus. Oh yeah, he, yeah, he had mentioned that I think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is bad for American interests in the region. Is that ultimately, if you want to, you know, have the populations of the region respond positively to the U.S. Mm-hmm. You need to resolve this conflict, and you can't continue to be seen sort of as the, the enabler of, of, of Israeli oppression of Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely true, you know, because if you want to make peace and stability with the governments of the Middle East, autocratic governments, mm-hmm. you can do that, right? They can they can suppress their people, but ultimately, if you have a sincere vision of having democracy flourish in the Middle East, then obviously you're going to have to make sure that you get along with the people and you won't get along with the people of the region so long as this is how you behave. Mm-hmm. You know, one of Israel's biggest fears from the Arab Spring, it's honestly sad even calling it Arab Spring at this point. I know, right. But, um, you know, the prospect of democracy throughout the Middle East was terrifying for Israel because mm-hmm. they knew that that would force them to backtrack from the way they're behaving towards Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And that's why they vigorously opposed the transition to democracy in Egypt and they fought tooth and nail to sort of restore the old regime. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, ultimately, that's that's a strategic choice that the U.S. Have, has to make. Do you want to continue supporting Israeli violations of Palestinian rights and, by extension, have to also support autocratic rule throughout the region? Or do you want to shift to something better and more stable and more just in the long term, which is just advocate much better policies and stop supporting this box and start supporting real democracy in the region, where you would actually get along with the people. It's such an obvious transition to something better. Right. And it really is just that short-term interests are, are really dominating the thinking, and I don't think that it's, it's wise in the long term at all. You know, military corporations benefit from conflict in the short term. They're happy continuing the current process. You know, it's just easier. It's easier and more manageable to continue mm-hmm. the status quo at the right. expense of ordinary people even though that could, you know, bite you in the ass in the long term. <laughs> Excuse my language. And, <laughs> That's and okay. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, it's, we, it's, it's up to us to demand something better. I get that the U.S. is not a perfect democratic system. We are lacking in so many ways. But really, ultimately, we have a degree of influence on our policy that does not exist in so many other parts of the world, and we really ought to be making use of it, which is why I think that Americans should be demanding much more vigorously better policy yeah. from our leaders. I totally agree with you. And honestly, I think a really good example of that is Bernie Sanders. Uh, mm-hmm. I followed Bernie for a long time, and I've always um, loved his most of his domestic policy, his candor, his authenticity. But this was always the one beef I had with Bernie. It was that you know back in the day he unequivocally supported Israel, and it would just make my blood boil. Now that's shifted, and I'm sure I'm sure Jim had something to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> but you I, listen. Like, Go ahead. No, I, I, I bet that's true. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, he and do talk on a regular basis, and I, I think that the shift in, in Bernie's thinking on the Middle East is definitely positive. Obviously, yeah. I'm speaking in my personal capacity, not a representative of my organization. Totally, is, 100. You know, completely nonpartisan. But on a personal level, I think that this has been a, a very positive shift. And I'm glad that Bernie Sanders has led the way. You know, in a way, he's immune from a lot of the crap that other candidates may catch because – the first thing you're going to receive when you criticize Israel is an accusation of anti-Semitism. Right, but he's and Jewish. Himself being Jewish, yeah, exactly, makes makes the case harder to make against him with that oh, yeah. front-up charge. Oh, yeah. And, 
And, and I'm seeing it trickle throughout the field. You know, the fact that not a single Democratic presidential candidate attended APAC's conference this year is mm-hmm. really promising. Mm. Um, the fact that a lot of them have come out in defense of Ilhan Omar is promising. The fact yeah. that the bill that Marco Rubio was trying to push through Congress, uh, through the Senate, um, that was basically encouraging states and local governments to punish people who engage in boycotts of Israel. The fact that almost every presidential candidate in the Senate voted against them, with the exception mm-hmm. of Globachar, um, mm-hmm. is, is a, you know, that's a shift. That's it's a real a shift. shift that, you know, Netanyahu's policies and Trump's policies have made it so clear mm-hmm. that in order to be progressive in any real or meaningful sense, you have to oppose the crazy policies that are currently being pursued by, by Israel mm-hmm. and by its most, you know, its most, frankly, I'll use the word fanatical backers in the U.S., yeah. because it is pretty extreme to suppress the right to free speech in the United I States agree. in order to shield Israel from criticism. So, and that's exactly yeah. what it is. BDS is a form of protest. It's a form of free speech. And the idea that our government would even consider outlying that is really flies in the face of our Constitution. And to see congressmen saying that this is okay has been really baffling to me. Uh, But that's also shifting. But let's talk about APAC for a second, because all of these anti-BDS bills have been propagated by APAC. You know, Mm -hmm. oftentimes people say, well, APAC doesn't, they don't have power over the Congress because they don't give them money and they have all this kind of crappy shit they say that's completely not true. APAC is a very powerful lobby. Uh, They... yeah, go ahead. By the admission of members of Congress themselves. Exactly. Right? The polling of members of Congress, and they acknowledge that APAC is one of the more powerful yeah. lobbies in, in D.C. Absolutely. And, you know, as a matter of technicality, they can't make direct contributions to, to members of Congress, mm-hmm. but they obviously make indirect contributions. You know, anybody who knows about anything about the way APAC works, mm-hmm. it's pretty well understood. They have something on their website called the Congressional Club. That's right. And it says in the description to join the Congressional Club you have to commit to paying thousands of dollars every mm-hmm. election cycle yep. to candidates who are pro-Israel. Mm-hmm. So let's not pretend that they don't drive, you know, the, the, the office to some extent with, with money on, on this kind of stuff. They absolutely do. Members of Congress have been talking about it very openly for a very long term, including former Congressman Brian Baird, who talked about this in, in a lot of detail. So mm-hmm. it's pretty well established. And in fact, there's a guy by the name of Stephen Rosen. I was just going to bring him up. Yep. <laughs> That's, to me, it's, it's the most mind-boggling quote ever. I'm sure you were going to talk about the same one. Yep, yep. Where, yeah, he was sitting in a, in a restaurant with Jeffrey Goldberg. Yep. And who's a very pro-Israel journalist, by the way, so it's not like a shitty oh, story. He's terrible. Or whatever. Yep. And he told him, you know, he picked up a napkin on, at the restaurant and said, APAC can get the signatures of 70 senators on this napkin within 24 hours. He was effectively bragging about APAC's yep. power in Washington. So, well, yeah, he also had the bragging about the uh, standing ovation that Netanyahu got was bought and paid for by APAC, you know, <laughs> which is true. Yeah, yeah. And and Tom Friedman himself actually used that term. That's and, right, Tom know, Friedman. And, paid yeah. for. And, and you'll notice that nobody said that Tom Friedman is an anti-Semite or was <laughs> engaging in trolls because of it. So, but if, if a Muslim congresswoman uses anything similar to that rhetoric, oh, much, God. much softer... Yeah. then it automatically becomes the first accusation because That's really right. it's not a it's really not about what is being said at the end of the day it is about what is a threat to the mm-hmm. US Israel relationship and when David when uh sorry when when Thomas Friedman who is generally a pro Israel guy too 
the, you know, it engages in criticism of APAC, they let it go because they don't think it's a, white, a fight worth having, especially when Tom Friedman does not advocate for a, a serious change in the U.S. relationship with yeah, Israel. Exactly. By contrast, because Ilhan Omar wants real accountability for Israel's behavior, that's why you see everybody go nuts and, and lose their minds over every statement that she makes. And I think, you know what, I really like Elon Omar. She's very refreshing to me because she speaks truth to power. She's unafraid. She's unedited, uh, unbossed, all of it. I think she's great. But I think part of that, too, is the fact that she is a dark-skinned Somali uh, person. And I think mm -hmm. you're, you're right. So if Bernie Sanders says the same thing that she does, Bernie's not going to get any criticism, but she's going to be called all kinds of names. And I mean, about her Twitter feed, some of the folks that trolling her, their death threats, uh, all yeah. kinds of things. It's yeah. like horrible, horrible. We're living in a moment in the U.S. where when Trump was running for president, he ran on a platform of banning Muslims from entering the country. And when right. a guy in the crowd asked him, when are we going to get rid of Muslims? Trump basically responded like, oh, yeah, we'll look into that. Imagine for a moment if a presidential candidate was asked, when are we going to get rid of the Jews? Yeah. And oh my God. the presidential candidate said, yeah, yeah, we'll look into that. That would have instantly been the end of their career. The media mm -hmm. would not have let that go for a split second, you know? Nope. But we live in a very permissive environment where you can say whatever you want about Muslims and people roll with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that created a level of prejudice yeah. that, that is permeating mainstream discourse where... When somebody falsely accuses Ilhan Omar of being an anti-Semite, nobody bothers look and examine the real statements because right. it already feeds into a hunch they've already had. It's like, yeah, you know, Muslim hijabi black woman, yeah, probably, probably she's an anti-Semite. You know, mm -hmm. it just it feels right to people mm -hmm. that they no longer examine the details of anything. I think that is absolutely a part of it. No, I totally agree. In fact, um, I wanted to ask you about Omar Bargatti, who is one of the co-founders of BDS. He was banned from traveling to the United States last month, or in April. Uh, he was getting ready to come to the United States to attend several conferences and was yep. uh, at, stopped at... our invitation, at, by the way, at the invitation oh. of the Arab American Institute. Well, yep. see, there you go. So what the yep. hell is that about? I mean, he was at Ben-Gurion and he got stopped by U.S. immigration, is my understanding. Can you talk That's a little bit right. about that? So for the longest time, he was denied the right to travel by the Israeli government itself. Yeah. And finally, he got that travel taken, removed, and, you know, almost <laughs> in sad irony, when he made it to the airport to come to the U.S., he was informed that U.S. immigration had basically denied his, wow. you know, even though he had a valid visa, they said they denied your right to enter, basically, the U.S., so you can't board the flight. It's and crazy. it really is remarkable because Omar Barghouti is, again, explicitly and repeatedly committed to nonviolence. That mm -hmm. is the only form of protest that he engages on, mm -hmm. is nonviolence. And right. so there, you can't make a security argument. This is really just the Trump administration deciding to exclude someone because of the opinions they hold. Yeah. And it ends up affecting our ability as Americans here. You know, Barghouti himself doesn't have First Amendment rights because he's not an American citizen. But we as Americans do. And we wanted right. to hear from a particular voice. And the fact that they're excluded exclusively because of what they have to say is 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 really crazy and the same thing happened by the way with another palestinian diplomat uh, hanan ashrawi just mm -hmm. more recently a couple of weeks ago where greenblatt uh jason greenblatt the u.s middle east envoy for the trump administration mm -hmm. tweeted at her that she's welcome to come to the u.s and meet with him anytime she, anytime she would like to 
and then she tries to come to the U.S. and the U.S. denies her entry. I mean, it's, it's just <laughs> the most ridiculous form of trolling ever, you know, that wow. the administration is simultaneously inviting people and then right. denying them entry to the U.S. That's insane. But this is where yeah. we're at. You know, I also, uh, an activist friend, an Israeli activist friend of mine was, he went to Humboldt University in Germany a couple weeks ago to protest. They were putting on a conference that was anti-BDS. So he went there with him, another Jewish gal and a Palestinian. And they were arrested and they actually had to defend themselves. They put on trial. So, (laughs) but my thing is, this is like, if we're, if we're really at the stage in the game where you're telling Jewish people that they're anti-Semitic simply because they support BDS, we've already lost the argument, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, if people who can win an argument don't have to engage in these kind of strong arm tactics. Mm-hmm. And because they've lost the argument, because mm-hmm. they know that the world is waking up to the extent of the injustice that Israel has imposed on Palestinians, yeah. that now they've, they're no longer putting up with the pretense of just trying to fight the case purely on the public. I mean, obviously, the Hasbara and public relations campaign is still ongoing, yeah. but it has reached a point where they want to take more aggressive actions against the people who are really outspoken about this stuff, which is precisely what they're doing, what they're doing. It's, it's an obvious sign of authoritarianism. Yeah. It takes away the pretense of Israel being a liberal democracy that welcomes all opinions and so on. This is all stuff, you know, that is pretty, and, and by the way, it's not just people who boycott Israel, but even people who boycott Israeli settlements. That's right. So again, Israeli settlements are war crimes under international law. So boycotting a war crime now puts you on Israel's shit list and you can't go. It's, it's, it's preposterous. It really is ridiculous. And it's the kind of thing where if only more people knew about it, I think the I conversation in the U.S. would shift drastically. So I have one last question, and I think it's a big one because... We're, I think we're at a certain stage right now with the settlements. Uh, there, you know, it's just, I don't know how you undo the damage that's been done because it's, it's gone on for so long now. The idea of a two-state solution is dead. I don't, I don't know how we get back there. So my question is this. If that is true, is it possible that I don't care if you call it Israel. I don't care if you call it Palestine. I don't care if you call it something else. Is it feasible that at some point a country is birthed from all of this mess that is truly a democracy? Mm -hmm. I think it is absolutely possible, but I worry that the time frame is going to be intolerable in a sense. And that mm-hmm. if we're going to get there, it's going to be many decades before we get there. When you just look at the state of things right now, um, the extent of Israeli discourse on this issue, the level of opposition to accepting Palestinians as equal human beings and all that stuff, that's not the kind of thing that's going to get resolved in the next few years. You know, yeah. It's the kind of thing that if, if, we're, if we're going to get there, it's definitely going to take decades. And we have pretty ugly few decades ahead of us in terms of violence and death and hatred and all kinds of really awful things. So in a sense, you know, I know a lot of people who celebrated the death of the two-state solution because they've always supported a single democratic state. Mm -hmm. And the one part of me that does not feel very happy to celebrate something like that, even though I agree that a single state with equal rights for everyone is a preferable outcome, I do not celebrate the death of the two-state solution because I thought the two-state solution was a useful sort of point Mm -hmm. Yeah, that we can hold on, that you know, you could still transition theoretically to a one state in the future, 
But I thought that there is an urgency to ending the occupation right. in order for there to be a level of normalcy for Palestinian life. Yeah. And that is now gone. And we're just really facing the reality that Palestinians are going to live in incredible suffering for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And we really have um, a heavy lift ahead of us to mm -hmm. bring you know, the political order around to support such an outcome. And I think that bringing Israeli society around is also going to be a struggle. But it's it's going to be the only thing that resolves this conflict. Either Palestinians, you know, justice demands one of two things. Either the Palestinians can have a state of their own and they can have independence, or they can be, if Israel insists on controlling them, that's fine, but then they have to have equal rights as equal citizens as Israelis. That's right. And you can't have it without one or the other. So in a sense, I think this is going to be inevitable because as long as that is not the case, there is going to be conflict. And as long as there is conflict, we're going to be fighting to end that conflict. So that seems to be the distant future. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're heading there and we can, you know, sort of feel some level of comfort in the fact that we're going to get there. But I don't think that it's a sign for anybody to rest or to say, to feel like it's inevitable because we're going to have to work like hell mm -hmm. to make sure it gets here sooner rather than later, because every day that we delay pushing things forward in that direction is a day in which there's going to be more violence and death and oppression, and that is not a prospect that everybody should be comfortable with. I agree, and I wish the media would do a better job on reporting on both sides of the conversation, because I think if Americans saw what's going on in Hebron, for example, that mm -hmm. they would be appalled. Yep. Absolutely. So if you're an activist here in the United States and you want to help, what is the best way for you to do that, in your opinion? Yeah, so I think there is a multitude of organizations that are worth plugging in with. Um, you know, you mentioned you work with Jewish Force for Peace. They're mm -hmm. one of the most awesome organizations that are doing this kind of work. Um, there is something called the Palestinian, the camp, uh, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, it used to be called the U.S. Campaign for Israeli Occupation, they changed their name. They're also doing incredible work. They're engaged on, on so many fronts. And, of course, I would shout out my organization as well, yes. the Arab American Institute. <laughs> we, are, we are, you know, we, we're, we just launched this campaign called the Palestine Is Campaign. And on Twitter, you can find it by going to the Twitter handle, Is Palestine. And mm -hmm. the answer basically is Palestine Is. And that's a campaign that is putting out tremendous educational material so that people yeah. get educated about the stuff. And it's not only our material, it's also the material of anybody else who's doing good work. So, for example, Noura Erekat is not officially affiliated with the Palestinian campaign, but we feature her materials on there because we think that she does a great job of explaining what's going on in Palestine. Mm -hmm. So there's all this educational material that is being put out through that campaign. But more importantly, there's going to be a weekly action alert so that there is something for people who care about this issue to do something every single week. That there's mm -hmm. not a week that goes by without people adding their voice on in an additional way. And I think that that's going to be a really uh, helpful way for people to plug in. Because I know that there are a lot of people who care about this issue, but who feel frustrated and are not sure how to engage specifically. So we just yeah. want to provide them with the tools to, to be active on it. That's and, smart. Yeah. And, and the first thing that's going to be coming up is Congresswoman Betty McCollum introduced a bill to protect Palestinian children who are held in Israeli military detention. Oh, and that's going to be a bill that we're going to promote. She's really courageous for putting this forward, and we think it's, it's, it deserves more attention. I agree. I did not know that she had put that forward. That's a great thing. Um, and just to explain for the audience so people realize this, the Palestinians, when they're picked up by the IDF, are not 
subject to Israeli law. They're they're prosecuted under military law. So it's very different. And I think it's important for people to realize that. And there have been kids that have been picked up in Hebron, for example, that are, you know, seven, eight years old, and they've been held without trial, without seeing their parents, without seeing an attorney, let alone anyone, you know, for months on end. This is not uncommon. Yeah, they're snatched in the middle of the night from their beds. They break yeah. into their homes and they take them away. And pretty much all of these kids, have, you know, uh, experience beatings while they're in, in prison. They're essentially, they actually receive physical abuse. Mm-hmm. They're forced to sign confessions that are not translated into their language, so they don't know what's being oh said. God. You know, it's, it's, it really is awful. And so it's that terrible. bill from Betty McCollum specifically tackles all of this, which is, you know, I think it's really, really important. Something we should definitely support. And Omar, what is your Twitter handle if folks want to follow you? My Twitter handle is just my name. It's at Omar Badar. That's O-M-A-R-B-A-D-D-A-R. Awesome.